evidence and answers. Have you ever been asked, why are you a Christian? How do you know it's true? Many of us may stumble when asked this basic question. In today's broadcast, Pat will present four basic arguments about why he is a Christian. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Recently, Pat held his first ever Zoom apologetics conference entitled, Truth, Finding Clarity in Confusing Times. Guest speakers included Kirby Anderson, Fazal Rana, Randy Manley, and our own Pat Zucran. Now with part one of Why I Am a Christian is Pat Zucran. Oh, thank you, Dave, and good evening, and aloha from wherever in the world you may be watching. For some of you, it's good evening. For some of you, it's a late evening. For some of you, it's good morning or good afternoon. So thank you for joining us for our first ever Evidence and Answers live stream conference. It's been a challenge for us, as I'm sure you have faced many challenges during this time. So I thank you for hanging in there with us and being patient with us and for joining us this evening. We're gonna cover a lot of topics here. And on this talk, I'm gonna be talking about why I believe in Christ, why I am a Christian. And I'm gonna cover a lot of information. I don't expect you to get it all, but I invite you to go to our website here, evidenceandanswers.org, evidenceandanswers.org. There you can find extensive information on all that I'm talking about, as well as the information that our speakers will be sharing as well. And there's over 500 interviews with top Christian scholars from all over the world, uh, many of the men who will be speaking tomorrow and Sunday night, uh, you can get uh, my interviews with them on evidenceandanswers.org. Why am I a Christian? Well, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. Being a Japanese American, I grew up in the Japanese Buddhist tradition. And at 17 years old, I began asking the questions, you know, that we all ask, why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? In fact, why is anything here? Why is the universe here? Is there anything after death? What am I going to invest my life in that'll make any kind of difference? And I began wrestling with those questions. And so I looked to, you know, my heritage, Buddhism, to see if I could find some answers there. And I found Buddhism to be a contradictory and unlivable system. Well, growing up here in Hawaii, we have many of the world religions here. And so I looked into many of the world religions. I found that most of them were based on legends and myths. In fact, going to a, a liberal, quote, Christian school, uh, I was taught that the Bible was filled with fairy tales and legends. And so I concluded all religions really are just fairy tales and myths. And I ended up really becoming an atheist. But as an atheist, I came to the dark conclusion that really if God does not exist, we live in a universe void of meaning void of significance, void of hope. We live a purposeless life. We're not here by any intended purpose. Really, we're here by chance. The universe exploded into being out of nothing. There's no intention for us being here. We live for a brief moment in this universe and eventually we just die and we're extinct forever. And that's kind of a gloomy situation that I resolve that perhaps that's just reality. Well, at 18 years old, I got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel for the very first time in my life. I heard that the God of the universe loved me, 
and desperately wanted a relationship with me and came down to earth, died on a cross to make that possible. And I thought, wow, that's, that's the greatest thing I ever heard. Well, the next day I went to the school priest and I shared with him the message that I had heard. And he just kind of smiled and he said, well, don't take it so seriously, Pat. Most religions, you know, are legendary and so is Christianity. And so, you know, if it makes you happy, great. But uh, don't take it so seriously, okay? And I was just stunned. You know, here was a guy who had studied Christianity all his life and didn't seem to believe the Bible or perhaps was wondering if he even believed in the existence of God. So I really began to question my faith, and that launched me on an investigation to see if indeed Christianity was true. Does God exist? And was Jesus a real historical person? And did he really rise from the dead? You know, I came to discover that there is compelling and powerful evidence for faith and hope in Christ. And that's probably one of the most important questions we need to answer. Does God exist? And is Jesus Christ really the Son of God? For as not only myself, but atheists throughout the centuries have realized, if God does not exist, then we're relegated to live in a universe void of meaning void of significance, void of purpose, void of any hope. Dr. Will Provine, biology professor at Cornell University, sums it up very well. He said that if atheistic Darwinism is true, then it ultimately means there's no life after death, no absolute foundation for right and wrong, no ultimate meaning for life, no free will. But if God does exist, if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is who he claimed to be, then there is purpose, there's meaning in life. Makes all the difference in the world. It's the most important question we need to answer. And I believe the evidence for the existence of God is quite compelling. So let's look at our first premise. Is there evidence that indeed a creator God exists? Well, there are several evidences that I could present, but First one, I'm just going to present for you three tonight, all right? And the first one is called the cosmological argument or the argument from first cause. And it's a simple argument, and it goes like this. Whatever has a beginning must have a cause, okay? The universal law of causality. Whatever has a beginning must have a cause. The universe has a beginning, therefore, the universe has a cause, and you must identify that cause. What is the most reasonable cause for the universe? We know that the universe has a beginning. Scientists today are unanimous on this. They call it the Big Bang. For centuries, scientists thought that the universe was eternal. But now we know the universe is not eternal. In fact, the universe has a beginning. And if the universe has a beginning, that poses some serious problems for those with the pantheistic worldview and atheism as well. How do we know the universe has a beginning? Well, Einstein, in his great formula, discovered the theory of relativity, and he discovered that the universe indeed has a beginning. Penzias and Wilson, in their radiation afterglow, they won a Nobel Prize for that, discovered the radiation echo that goes all the way back to the Big Bang, the beginning of the universe. Edwin Hubble, in his award-winning discovery, discovered the red shift, that the galaxies are indeed moving apart. The universe is expanding. And of course, the second law of thermodynamics, the universe is running out of energy. All that 
That indicates that indeed the universe has a beginning. Science is pretty much unanimous on that now. Atheist scientist, one of the most brilliant astrophysicists of our time, Stephen Hawking says this. He says, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang, right? Einstein's theory of relativity teaches that time, energy, and matter are interconnected. Can't have one without the other. In other words, the universe exploded into being out of nothing. Dr. Steven Weinberg, Nobel Prize winning physicist and devout atheist, says this, in the beginning, there was an explosion. Not an explosion like those familiar on Earth, but an explosion which occurred simultaneously everywhere, filling all space from the beginning with every particle of matter rushing apart from every other particle. So the science community is pretty much unanimous that the universe has a beginning. It's called the Big Bang, all right? Now that poses a problem for the pantheists, New Agers, those in the Eastern religions of Taoism and forms of Buddhism and Hinduism, because pantheism, those kind of religions teach the universe is eternal, but the evidence shows the universe has a beginning. But the atheists have a problem too, because the law of causality, whatever has a beginning must have a cause, and you must identify the cause of the universe. Now, along with that is the universal law of cause and effect. Every cause has an effect, and every effect has a cause, and no effect is greater than its cause. In other words, the universe is the result of a cause. And whatever caused the universe then is greater than the universe. What thing or being could be greater than time? Something infinite had to create something finite. Something very powerful and highly intelligent had to create something like the universe. And I think your most reasonable answer is the God of the Bible. Remember, the law of causality, the argument of first cause, whatever has a beginning must have a cause. Uh, whatever has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning, and therefore the universe has a cause. And I believe the God of the Bible is the most reasonable conclusion. To say the universe exploded into being out of nothing, well, that goes against reason and logic and goes against even scientific thinking. Nothing produces nothing produces nothing, all right? Whatever caused the universe is greater than the universe. I believe the God of the Bible is indeed the most reasonable choice. If you study the theory of the Big Bang, the universe exploded into being out of nothing. It sounds a lot like Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first line of evidence is that the universe has a beginning. Second, we have what's called the teleological argument or the argument from design. And it goes like this. Every design has a designer. The universe has highly complex design. Therefore, the universe has a designer. All right, that comes from Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 22. Let me give you an example. Suppose you're flying here to Hawaii, hopefully not during the pandemic, but after this is all over, you're flying to Hawaii and your plane crashes somewhere in the middle of the Pacific, all right? And you're the only one that survives and you make it to an abandoned island, all right? And it doesn't appear that there's anyone else on that island. 
all right? But you're walking along the beach and you find this on the ground, a watch. What do you immediately assume? Do you assume that natural causes created this watch? The wind, the waves, the uh, material in the land somehow came together in a one in a trillion, trillion, trillion chance and created this watch? Most of you wouldn't. Most of us, if not all of us, would conclude this is the product of, of an intelligent mind. Why? There's complexity, all right, and there's design. When you see complexity and design, it points to a source of intelligence. There's got to be someone else on that island who dropped that watch. That's the most reasonable conclusion. Is it possible the wind, the waves, and the physical material somehow came together to form the watch? Possible. But which one is more reasonable? I would say intelligent design. And that's what you see when you study our universe and the world we live in. From the telescope to the microscope, we are seeing intelligent design all over creation. For example, the forces that sustain the universe are delicately balanced and sit on a razor's edge. For example, the force of gravity is precisely tuned so the universe expands at just the right rate. If the force of gravity were just slightly weaker, the universe would expand faster and matter would disperse too quickly so that none of it would clump enough to form galaxies or stars. If the universe expanded slower, matter would clump so effectively that the universe would collapse into a super dense lump before any solar type stars could form. Astronomers state that the expansion rate cannot differ by more than one part in 10 to the 55th power. That's how delicately balanced the force of gravity is. In other words, we live in a just right universe. Not only do we live in a just right universe, we live in a just right solar system. For example, the sun is the exact size we need and burns at just the right rate. We are the precise distance from the sun that we need to be. Any closer, we would burn up. Any farther away, we would be too cold and we cannot have life upon this earth. We are not bombarded by meteors and asteroids because there is a big brother who's precisely in the right place who protects us, the planet Jupiter. He's big enough and he rotates in the right position so that his gravitational force sucks in meteors and asteroids. And Jupiter, we know, is a large gas ball. So when these meteors and asteroids come crashing into Jupiter, it's not a hard planet. They are absorbed like a baseball going into a catcher's mitt. The moon is just the right size to stabilize our axle tilt of the Earth, its rotation, and control the tides. So not only do we live in a just right universe, we live in a just right solar system. And when you look at biology now, you see intelligent design everywhere. Let me give you an example. If you saw Cosmo, this robot here, walking through your parking lot, what would you automatically assume? Would you assume natural forces and chance brought this together? I doubt it you would say, wow, what an ingenious invention of an intelligence of intelligence, all right? When we see complexity, design for a specific purpose, 
that points to a source of intelligence. Well, the best and brightest engineers and scientists created Cosmo. Billions of dollars were placed into creating Cosmo, and he still cannot do what the human body can do, not even close. Now, if you would not conclude Cosmo is the result of natural causes, how much more the human body? How about something like the human brain, right? We, the brain is a powerful machine. We have not created a computer that can do what the human brain can do. It is a magnificent machine. Carl Sagan, the atheist, stated this. He noted that the genetic information in the brain expressed in bits is probably comparable to the number of connections among neurons, about 100 trillion, 10 to the 14th power in bits. If written out in English in book form, it would fill some 20 million volumes of books. In other words, we could stack the books from here all the way up to the moon. That's how much information is in your brain. He states the brain is a very big place and a very small place. The neurochemistry of the brain is astonishingly busy. The circuitry of a machine more wonderfully than any devised by humans. And now we have the wonderful world of microbiology. And we're making remarkable discoveries. And now DNA has become one of the strongest evidence for an intelligent designer. Those of you who have studied DNA, you know that there are 1,200 to 2,000 letters or bases that are needed to build just one protein. And it's highly improbable that a single protein molecule could form just by chance. Scientist Dr. Stephen Meyer states that the probability of the right amino acids forming the precise sequence needed to form one just one protein molecule is one chance in 100,000 trillion, 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 trillion. That's 10 with 127 zeros behind it. He further states that this would be the odds for just one, one protein molecule, all right? A minimally complex cell needs between three and 500 protein molecules. Even outspoken atheists, leader of the new atheist movement, Richard Dawkins says, the machine code of genes is uncannily computer-like. The pages of a molecular biology journal might be interchanged with those of a computer engineering journal. Computer genius Bill Gates said, DNA is far more complex than any software that we have ever created. None of us would assume the Microsoft Windows program was created accidentally by a monkey jumping on a computer. All right? It's a highly complex computer code here behind something like Microsoft Windows. And those of my friends and those of you in computer engineering and computer program know that if you just get five, four, even three digits wrong, even one digit sometimes, the program cannot work. And my friends in the computer industry spend hours, days, weeks looking for that one digit that keeps the program from working properly. That's how highly precise computer programming is. And that's the same with DNA. What best accounts for this kind of design? Random chance? I think a more reasonable conclusion is an intelligent designer. And scientists, both Christian and non-Christian are beginning to realize the evidence for an intelligent designer is quite compelling. 
Robert Griffiths, winner of the Heinemann Award in Mathematics, the highest award given in the mathematical sciences, stated, if we need an atheist to debate, I go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't much use. Agnostic and award-winning NASA scientist Robert Jastro stated this, and he sums it up very nicely for us. He says, for the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Complexity and design point to an intelligent designer. And finally, we have the moral argument. There is a universal moral law that we know is right and true. And the argument goes like this. Every law has a lawgiver. There is an absolute moral law. Therefore, there is an absolute moral lawgiver. It comes from Romans chapter 2. Cultures all around the world, we have the same universal moral law code. It might be applied differently, but we have pretty much the same moral law code. In all cultures, adultery is wrong. In all cultures, stealing is wrong. Unjust killing or murder, rape, child molestation is wrong. We have a universal moral law code. Where does that come from? Can't have a moral law without a moral lawgiver. That was one of the problems that perplexed C.S. Lewis. You might be familiar with this man. He wrote those great novels, The Chronicles of Narnia. And he was an atheist well into his adulthood. But one of the things that perplexed him was the problem of evil. And he said this, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? When I was uh, with an atheist and we were debating on the radio, Luke, my first question was, well, how did you come to that conclusion of atheism? And he said, because of all the evil that I see in the world. And I said, Luke, define evil for me. No one had ever asked him that before, and he kind of got stuck. And, he went, e and then he kind of dodged it and refused to answer the question. I think he saw the fallacy of his position. Because if something is objectively evil, then there's an absolute standard of good by which you're judging that. And where did that absolute objective standard of good come from, from which we have departed? You cannot have a universal moral law without a moral lawgiver. Immanuel Kant, one of the great philosophers of modern time, after criticizing the arguments for the existence of God, ended up saying this, two things fill my mind ever new with an increasing admiration and awe. The oftener and more steadily we reflect upon them. The starry heavens above and the moral law within me. Universal moral law code points to a moral lawgiver. And then we have Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the divine Son of God and confirmed his claim through his miraculous, sinless life, ministry, and resurrection. The New Testament gives us a very accurate record of the life of Christ. And 
Unfortunately, I don't have time to go into all the evidences for the accuracy of the New Testament. You'll have to go to our website there at evidenceandanswers.org and you can find articles and radio shows on that particular topic, right? But the New Testament gives us an accurate record of the life of Christ. But not only do we have the New Testament, we have over a dozen non-Christian or what we call anti-Christian because these guys really didn't like Christianity, Roman and Jewish sources that confirm dozens upon dozens of facts recorded in the New Testament about the life of Jesus Christ. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharak.